Is this a dream? No, it's not a dream. I'm an angel. Why would God send me an angel? Because God knows that everyone needs a little coaching now and then. I'm loving angels. I saw an angel. All angels say, Hi, and welcome to the Super Angel Podcast, the go-to podcast for angels backing the next generation of European unicorn founders. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our community at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Charlie, the man responsible for building and scaling multiple enterprise software startups and leading their marketing, sales, and customer success teams from zero to $200 million as their first revenue hire for companies such as Played, Ramp, and Alloy. Charlie has also been an early investor in companies such as Stitch, Unit, Kodat, Move, Finch, and many more. If you're an angel listening in and wanting to get closer to the European angel scene, do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to connect and see how we can play together. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Vaban from Carter is the easiest way to launch and run your syndicate. Vaban's end-to-end platform automates your back office so you can focus on what matters, supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs and building your network. Angel investors are the fuel to innovation, and they've created the Atom SPV to allow for more deals, more ownership, and less fees. Backed by Carter, the leading fintech infrastructure company, Vaban will be with you all from fundraising to exit. Investors on the Vaban platform have raised over $2.5 billion in global investment for companies including Revolut, Bolt, and SpaceX. If you'd like to learn more, please check out www.vaban.io forward slash EUVC. Charlie, welcome to the Super Angel Podcast. We are so excited to have you with us. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining the pod, Charlie. As a bit of a fintech fanboy myself, I'm uh, so thrilled to have you on. And also so excited for your unique perspective, you know, being an active US angel, but also having looked at the European tech scene. So let's get started. Maybe you want to share with the listeners like your story and what got you into angel investing? Yeah, for sure. Um, And I'll, I'll try to keep it short, but we'll see how it goes. My quick background, uh, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. So my parents actually moved to the U.S. To, uh, from China to go to school here. And I ended up starting uh, my life in Daly City, specifically right outside of San Francisco. Long story short, I ended up going to school on the East Coast. First job out of college was actually working for J.P. Morgan. In a bit of a kind of funky role there, I actually joined an R&D team that was specifically uh, looking at emerging technologies and payments. Uh, we didn't quite call it fintech at the time, uh, but I was the weird, you know, twenty-one-year-old analyst that was obsessed about payments and thought it was really interesting, and was trying to find just interesting new companies and ideas. Uh, I was like, quickly realized J.P. Morgan wasn't exactly the fastest-moving place in the world, but did a lot of our early fun work in in Bitcoin and blockchain and sort of APIs and payments and. Uh, ended up actually moving out to San Francisco to join a company called Plaid out in San Francisco uh, really early on. So he joined as one of our first business people, I guess, and then ended up building a lot of the various kind of go-to-market functions for Plaid. But then long story short, I ended up going to um, spend a bunch of years there. Uh, and my actual motivation for angel investing was was kind of interesting. Um, one, I was in San Francisco and was noticing 
and a bunch of my friends were angel investing. And I was like, wait a second, I know you don't have that much money. Um, and I thought you kind of had to have a lot of money to be angel investing. Like, how, how are you doing this? And uh, quickly realized uh, it was, oh, they were investing in their other friends that were starting companies. Uh, and they weren't actually putting in a lot of money, right? I assumed that you needed to have hundreds of thousands of dollars. You need to be writing 25, 50K checks. And what I was realizing, no, if the founder wants you to bring on the cap table, right? Uh, and they really like you and maybe you have a personal relationship where you have some value add, they're more than happy to bring on a one to two K, five K check and, uh, made a lot more approachable. And then the other side was I was thinking about trying to find just potential new companies to join. I really liked early stage sort of realized that, well, I was actually spending a lot of time talking to other investors and angels on who are the best performing companies in their portfolios. Can you tell me what investor updates you're getting from there? Uh, and that sort of added the impetus of like, well, why not I start angel investing and use it as a way to to build a relationship with founders and start to track interesting companies that I really, really like and potentially would think about joining. So that was kind of uh, my entryway into to starting angel invest. I guess now looking back, and we're going to go more into detail on your investment strategy in the next segment, but like um, looking back to the angel investments you've done to date. Are there any particular stories or any particular, you know, deals you want to share and maybe your favorite or most memorable deal? That'd be great. I think the, the first one that comes to mind, um, and, and, and hopefully it's a company that I think your audience is familiar with, it's, it's a company called Kodat. So uh, Pete and Alex, I actually met initially when I was helping to, to expand out our UK presence uh, for Plaid. So at this point, I moved at some point, I moved from San Francisco moved out to New York uh, and was starting to spend time with both expanding out our New York office. And also I had some team members out in the UK office as we were trying to figure out, okay, how do we actually expand to our first international office? Uh, and one of the things that we spent a lot of time on uh, to expand out our presence in the UK was just getting to know the, the sort of London fintech ecosystem. And one of the companies that a bunch of founders in, in London and the UK kept on bringing up was, hey, you guys should go and talk with the Kodat team. You know, there's there's a lot of analogies. They're building out a lot of API integrations into uh, accounting data. They're providing this kind of B2B API. There's a lot of kind of similarities. And I think there's a potential partnership opportunity uh, between Plaid and Kodat. And they're also just really, really nice folks and can get you guys connected into the ecosystem. And that ended up being 100% true. Uh, so I ended up meeting uh, the founders of Kodat out in London, we went out, I guess, to a classic London festivity, went out for a pub, went out for a few drinks. It's not a London festivity. That's just a London afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just every day, I guess. Right. And so, yeah, I ended up spending, up spending a bunch of time with them every time I would come out to London. And then at one point, Pete and team came out to New York and, hey, we'd, we'd love to just kind of catch up and hear how things are going. And, and every once in a while, I would uh, just sort of help them on some various things across go to market. How do you think about early sales hiring, how to think about marketing, how to think about running like an ABM, account-based marketing type motion, all that kind of fun stuff, just stuff that we had seen at Plaid and that they were starting to go through for their stage. And was actually fortunate enough to then catch him in New York. And one of the asks that he brought up to me was, hey, would love to actually meet some investors while I'm out here, right? We're doing really, really well. And uh, we're opportunistically just starting to build relationships with investors. And one of our investors uh, from Plaid was Index. We were a big fan uh, of the Index Ventures team. They're obviously very, very big in Europe, and they've done a great job, I think, kind of building out their their US team and US presence. And I said, hey, you act actually, one of the investors, Mark, who's on our board, 
happens to actually be in town in, in New York while you guys are here, you guys should meet. I think there'd be a lot to talk to. And long story short, I did that one quick intro and then Index ended up leading Kodak's, I think, Series B round. And at this point, I was started to get interested in angel investing. And I just kind of put the ask out there of like, hey, Pete, I know you're fundraising and this is happening. Could I put in a small check? And I think I was the smallest angel check on their cap table and we figured it out. But it's been an amazing partnership just working with them over the past few years and having that relationship grow. And they built an amazing team and amazing company there. On the one hand side, venture and, and tech investing is all about relationships. And on the other hand, we're all very, very busy people and we're really, really trying to have the biggest impact we can and make our, our time really matter. And as such, it's always a balance between, well, is, is, is this relationship building or is it actual, actually more transactional relationship building, right? Because you know that you're also only really working with people that you're also probably going to do something with some time down the line. I'm wondering, how do you think about that personally? Because you know, you, the way you put out your story here, it sounds all very organic, but at the same time, you're, I'm sure you're as strategic a human being as, as I am. And as such, we're, we're also making sure that we're spending our time the wisest. Could you share with me a bit how you think about your own relationship building and your investing career and, and, and all those things? Yeah, obviously, like the time, the time is the most expensive asset that we have, right? And it's the one thing that you truly can't create more of, and it's extremely unscalable to, to leverage time, right? I think the, the first thing that I think about is probably when it comes to personal relationships, and that's both sort of friendships and professional and, and investing or whatever, I think, I guess I tend to be, I want to say selective, uh, but tend to be, I think, strongly opinionated on the types of people that I want to work with, surround myself with, and uh, go deep with, right? Uh, and so I, I, I do believe in, in the power of uh, weak networks, right? And so I do have a lot of people that I will catch up with and, and we'll figure out the most sort of efficient way to catch up a lot of those people that tends to be around things like conferences, events. I don't do that many happy hours. I'm actually quite introverted and I don't like actually doing that type of thing, but dinners and stuff like that, right? Where I can spend a concentrated amount of time with a lot of interesting people and people that I think are really interesting or, or can provide an interesting perspective to me. And I'll figure it out kind of more scaled ways of doing that, right? And then for people that I want to spend kind of more one-on-one -on -one time with, uh, I tend to be very, very, I think, directive and selective around that. And then this is something actually I learned kind of via, via angel investing, where when I first started angel investing, I had a pretty broad aperture. I, I wasn't really specifically interested in anything. I was kind of just excited about, you know, oh, cool, I can angel invest. That's like all of a sudden, it's sort of this like big unlock of that's just a thing that you can do. And all of a sudden, you just call yourself, I'm an angel investor and doors weirdly open, right? Uh, the moment that you say you're an angel investor and, you, and you've angeled into a few companies. And that was a bit overwhelming initially. And I was talking to a lot of founders, a lot of pitches and sort of realizing, oh, this is taking up a lot of my time. And I also had a full-time job, right? And friends and family and everything. And so one of the things I specifically started to do uh, that I think started to compound for me a lot more, particularly related to investing and, and sort of approaching it towards personal relationships is just being very, very specific around what are things that I tend to be interested and excited about and what is also my sort of value add and why should someone talk to me too, right? Um, and I ended up triangulating early on around, you know what, at, the, at this point, I'm really interested in just B2B fintech, fintech infrastructure and developer tooling as the kind of three main categories I'm interested in also tends to be the three areas that I think I tend to have an interesting, highly opinionated 
sometimes weekly held pr uh, um, perspective around those ecosystems uh, and start to kind of communicate out into the market. These are the type of founders that I'm interested in and these are want to see. If it falls outside of that, if it's something consumer fintech, unless you think there's something super crazy and weird and I think it'd be kind of fun to learn, I'm probably not going to be super interested and it won't be the best use of their time either. So long story short, I think just being, for me, it's just been a lot more opinionated on on what it, what I get excited about, what I'm interested in, and then kind of filtering that funnel early on for both professional and, and, and also personal a little bit. What I was thinking while you were saying about kind of like weaker networks and then like a closed circle where you deepen relationships, in some ways, you know, you could think as angel, uh, angel investing as a way of like deciding for some of those, let's say, um, relationships to solidify them into kind of tighter networks. It's more like, okay, Pete is really great. I think there's so much to be done here. I really want to build a long-lasting relationship with him. It's not a transactional relationship, right? And the moment you invest anyways, you're like, you know, super aligned on the really long-term upside of that business and of that relationship. So it's also kind of potentially a way of like really, uh, you know, coupling yourself closely to a node that you want to really deeply develop a relationship with, right? Yeah, 100%. And kind of taking a step back now, before we go into the second segment around investment strategy and the likes, you know, having been angel investing for, for those last years, what would you say it's given you kind of personally and, and professionally besides, you know, uh, some of the discovery and business opportunities you already mentioned? For me, at least it's given me a really wide aperture on, there's a lot of different ways as to how interesting and amazing companies are made, right? I think that oftentimes, you know, you read these investor stories and you read sort of the look backs upon an exit, right? And different types of media want to portray, oh, well, there's a certain sort of phenotype or persona that the founders should look for what you should look at, right? And I think that's been really, really interesting to see. No, there's actually a lot of different ways to build a company, right? And there's no right way or wrong way. A lot of it is dependent upon the market, timing, competitive landscape, what the founder cares about, how they want to build it, ethos of the company, etc. Right. And then on the flip side, I think from the investing perspective, there's a lot of different ways to pick an investment, right? I think for a lot the longest time I was spending a lot of time just trying to understand, well, how do people you know, pick really good companies early. And I'm still very much in the early stages of my uh, investing career, I would say, right? I think there's some promising companies in the portfolio. It's a very long feedback loop. And I think that's something that actually took me a while to get somewhat comfortable with, right? It's particularly coming from an operating background, where I think with from an operating perspective, uh, particularly through operating in a high growth environments, you're often just really used to really fast feedback loops, right? If I hire someone, fire someone, I'll roll out this activity, I'll see the results pretty instantly kind of flow through the company. When it comes to angel investing, it's great. I'll, I'll invest at a pre-seed seed and then, all right, let's take 10 years and let's see if it actually plays out, right? Um, and there are some things, milestones along the way that you can kind of see there, but the feedback loop is really, really long. And what I've realized talking to a lot of other angels, a lot of other GPs, investors, is that there's no one way to pick a company. Uh, and you kind of have to be, I think, specific to yourself and true to yourself around what gets you excited about back-end company. And to me, it then also goes back to why are you investing and what drives you around investing and, and being really, really clear around that. And that, for me, has actually changed uh, over the past kind of different years, depending upon what I've been trying to optimize for. Before going into the investment strategy segment, I have to ask you, because we're really going through a tough period in the market, right? And if you're just in one company, then you know you can kind of be boxed in and it's hard to see what is actually external factors and what's 
<laughs> where we've gotten ourselves inside this company. But having that exposure to many different companies while being an operator, I can only imagine has been quite valuable. Could you put a few words to how you've been able to leverage that, you know, when you think about your own operator role and, and, and also bring that to the executive team? No, I think that that perspective is probably the most valuable aspect that I get from an operating perspective, right? Where uh, in my day job, I always spend a lot of time with our founders, our exec team, trying to navigate through all the various headwinds and tailwinds that we've seen across the market and the macro, right? And that's something that we're often asking ourselves is, how much is this is, is this macro-based, right? Versus how much of it is self-inflicted and it's, it's things that we can correct for and build for and, and figure out, right? One, I get this amazing test bed of founders to also bounce ideas off of, right? I think what's really unique about being an angel is that you're often also able to get a lot more information uh, and, and play a very sort of different and special role for a lot of founders than typically the, their largest investors, right? Where for the largest investors, right, there's a bit more polish sometimes. There's sort of this interesting, I think, tension between how much information that you want to share about how you're feeling about the company, what's going well, what isn't going well, because they are your largest investors, right? And there's different motives and, and motivations as to what you want to tell them and why. As an angel, I tend to be pretty clear, right? Where, hey, I'm here to support you as the founder. I've already made my investment. I'm not trying to you know, come in and box you out or do a takeover. I don't even have the power to do that, right? And so uh, I think that having this amazing roster of just like really great founders to also bounce ideas off of and also tell them, hey, here's how I'm feeling, what I'm feeling. Do you feel the same thing? How are you guys approaching your business and how have you been talking to your exec team has been just really, really valuable perspective for me to be, be also be able to share back to, to my team there too. Also, just the mere fact that you can identify with a lot of that, right? Puts you in a very different position to like a lot of big like VC investors, I would argue, right? I, I hope so. Yeah, I like to think so. Oh no, thought about the thesis. I would love to hear your take. Are you thinking about building a portfolio for 150 companies or do you want to go more focused, uh, more concentrated? How do you think about your investment segments, your verticals, ownership? Do you care about that or do you go in whatever whatever you have available in the month? I'm so curious to hear more. I would say there's definitely been phases around how I've approached, I think, investing and angel investing. And I'll kind of talk a, a little bit about that where, and actually, I, I, I'm happy to also go into specifics because I feel as a lot of angel investors actually don't go into specifics. And I always found that to be really, really annoying. Uh, <laughs> and I can go a little bit into that, the actual specifics on how I thought about it. Go as detailed as you can. So when I first started, great. I had this crazy unlock of, oh, you can do angel investing with smaller checks. That is fascinating. And if you just kind of ask founders, asking is the first part, right? Of being like, hey, I heard you're raising around or are you thinking about raising around or the next time you're raising around or hey, whenever you think about starting a company, I you know would love to be in that discussion and, uh, and be an investor, right? And this is my check size. So I first started off with, uh, at some point I made a decision of, I was starting to save a lot of money to potentially go to B school. That was something that I was really, really interested in going. And at some point, realize, well, I'm, I'm not going to go to B school anymore. The opportunity cost was a little bit, I think, expensive for me. And there's a lot of stuff that I still wanted to do at, at Plaid and the other companies I joined that B school just didn't quite make sense timing wise. And so I'd ended up saving a decent amount of money. Uh, and I was like, well, maybe what I'll do is I'll take the money that was going to go into the money pit that is B school. I'll take $100,000 of it, right? So I had the luxury of taking, being able to save up $100,000. I'm going to 
put it into the money pit that is angel investing, right? Uh, I'm going to be very clear of this is money that I expect to never see again, right? And the number one piece of advice that I've gotten from every single angel is that if you go into angel investing, think you're going to make money, you're not going to make money. Just don't, right? That probably isn't going to happen. It's really, really unlikely just given the amount and number of investment that you can do and duration and portfolio construction and all that, you know, not the best way to make money. There's a lot more better ways if you just purely care about money maximization, way more interesting ways to go make money with $100,000, right? And, uh, and so I'll say, great, I'm going to take this. But my framing as to why I wanted to do angel investing was I'm going to use it to invest in my career, right? I was going to use the $100,000 for business school to invest in my career. How can I use angel investing as a way to invest in my career, right? And the way that I've approached I've been very, very fortunate to join uh, a few kind of hyper growth companies early on. Some of it, a lot of it was luck. A lot of it was I had a thesis about the market and I found this team that I was really excited about. And I remember thinking at one point, it, it is kind of crazy that we expect early employees to be really good pickers, right? Where like I plot, I think I was the 11th or 12th employee or something. And I got really lucky. And the question I would often get is, well, how did you know? Like, how did you know to join this company? How did you know that they're going to be so successful? You picked them super early. And the honest answer was, I, I mean, I really believed in the company, but am I a better picker than, you know, Sequoia, than Andreessen? Like these people, they're professional investors. They theoretically see the best companies, the best founders. They have multiple years of being able to pick really, really early on. And I'm supposed to say I'm a better picker than them. Like that's kind of a ridiculous statement to say, Right. But I want to get better at picking, right? Because as we talked about, the most expensive thing that I have in my career is my time and the, and where I spend the vast majority of my life is going to be at work. And that's where I've gotten historically a lot of my sort of leverage from an income and, and career perspective. And so if I want to join an early stage company, I need to get figure out well, what is it that I get excited about from picking early stage companies and and how do I pick them and why? And so that was sort of my first North Star when it came to angel investing. So I took hundred thousand dollars. And the next thing I did was, okay, I'm going to divide that into 10, right? I'm going to do 10 angel investments. I'm going to add a little bit of duration in the portfolio. So I'll do this over a, a two year period. Every single investment I do is the same check size. Like one of the other pieces of advice that I, that I heard from a lot of angels was don't vary the check size based off the excitement of the investment. It should be either a yes or a no and keep this check size the same. You have no clue which one's actually going to work out. And oftentimes the angel investment that you're a marginal yes on could have oftentimes it's the most successful angel investment versus the one that you were extremely excited about. And you shouldn't vary the check size based off the level of excitement. Keep it consistent, right? So you're keeping that as a control. And so I did that. I took $100,000, divide that by 10. That's 10K per range for investment, right? And I started to do angel investing. The first set of investments that I did were people that I knew really, really well, uh, people I built relationships with, friends that I knew that were starting companies. And so the first set actually was a bit of a hodgepodge of companies of mostly friends and people that I knew, right? I ended up actually deploying that, that capital a lot faster than I probably wanted to. I did it within a year. And at the time, I think I was just very founder orientated. I was a very founder first angel investor where, hey, I just got excited about the founder and how they got to that space and what they're interested in, what they're excited about. I tended to be, you know what? I'm down to support in. I'm in. We'll love to put 10K. Uh, into whatever round is happening, right? Or whatever, whenever you do think about a round, like I'm in, right? Some founders, I'd be like, I don't even care what you're working on, I'm in. Over time, I, I've definitely adjusted that quite a bit, right? So I think the biggest adjustment that 
I started to do as an angel was one started to be more thematic and specifically focus on a vertical. It's just hard to filter deal flow. It's hard to filter quality of founder, quality of ideas, quality of uh, investments. And also, I think over the past four or five years, just with the amount of capital that came into the market, there were just so many companies and so much funding that I just had to figure out how to pick a focus in a focus area. And so I then started to really specifically focus on, you know what, I'm just going to really focus on these specific niches on B2B fintech, fintech infrastructure, and I'll do some developer tooling, but only if it's sort of referred based in around the founder perspective. And that's where I'm going to build a bit more of a reputation around uh, and a bit more of what I care about and a bit more sort of, I would say, like opinion about the market that they're in. The other thing that I think was a big structural change early on, I think that there was like two big games I was sort of thinking through as an angel, right? There was one where I think early on, I was I got kind of caught up in the the name dropping of, of a big famous uh, GP or investor in the round, right? It was like, oh, Sequoia is doing this investment and Andreessen is doing this one in, in this space. That's really exciting and interesting. I want to be a part of that and have my name on the announcement. And that's kind of cool, right? And there definitely is a sort of PR flashiness. There's like a sexiness side of the angel. I definitely caught up in that for a little bit, right? And so there are definitely some investments where well, yeah, I think I, I, I like the founder, but oh, XYZ fund is in and I have a lot of respect for that fund. You know what? I'm down. Sounds cool, right? Um, I think a couple things I realized. One, the founder experience for me like probably wasn't the highest then, right? Just because I maybe didn't really get to know the founder super, super well. I was more like more of a name brand that they're putting on the cap table, right? And so what I was getting out from that relationship wasn't really helpful for the North Star of what I cared about, which was getting to know founders and potentially finding a early stage company to join at some point, right? And then two, the other thing that I wanted to start to optimize for was like, well, I actually think I want to try to figure out how to be a like a first investor in a company. Like how do I get high conviction in a founder and idea and be first to that founder before anyone else? And then I actually started to realize that doing that started to significantly, I think, increase the quality of my deal flow, right? Because I was no longer downstream of these sort of like seed funds, pre-seed funds, multi-stage funds, right? Or downstream, upstream, right? Whatever way you want to think about it. Like I was the one sending them interesting companies and founders and starting to meet founders really, really early. And I realized, oh, that's actually like a way to build a special relationship with that founder, right? To maximize getting to an interesting spot with that founder where you're in a high degree of trust. And also just, just understanding how they think about building and tracking that momentum into building. And I really enjoyed that process. Like I like meeting founders really early on, tracking their progress over time, how they navigated the idea maze. And then, hey, like right when they're thinking about funding or maybe right before, want to go, hey, I actually would love to back. I love what you're doing. We've always spent a lot of time together, maybe a couple of weeks. And I, I'd love to see how you iterate. I want to invest in the company that you're in, right? So a lot of this then requires me, I think, to be a lot more thematic, a lot more deliberate on the type of founders I'm interested in, spaces I'm excited about. And I also now care a lot more about just like the market dynamic and the gravity of the market that you're in. And so I joke, I'm probably like nowadays, I'm much more, I would say kind of 51% founder, 49% market, right? Where great founder in a bad market, market wins, bad markets are just very, very hard to overcome. Bad founder in a great market, you probably have a pretty decent outcome, uh, but great founder in a great market is like the dream spot to be in. I think the interesting parts is trying to figure out the sort of consensus, non-consensus part, right? Where if you want to be an early investor and get to conviction faster than everyone else, oftentimes there's things that look non-consensus about the market, non-consensus about the founder. And at some point, it turns into a consensus investment, right? 
nowadays, I spend a lot more time thinking about the markets and the markets that they're attacking and also the founder and, and sort of that, that matching between the two. I mean, there's so many things that I can think about that specialization really helps you with, right? From like the mere focus to, you know, really having a thesis and deep kind of knowledge areas to, you know, finding people before other people, you know, and, and network depth, uh, among other things. But would you say there's anything that specialization retracts? I guess, I don't know, one thing that could come to mind is like, you know, to be a, a, a new founder in an, in an area, you, you need to be slightly naive. So maybe if you've looked at an area so much, you miss out uh, something new, right? Or, you know, mental models are great, but then if you're overgeneralized, you might miss something new as well. I don't know. These are a few examples that come top of mind, but any, anything else besides, uh, you know, the, the, the deep value add areas, which I very much agree with? No, 100%. I, I think something I'm, I'm constantly asking myself is, am, am I actually looking at, the market, the idea that this, this founder is tackling from a first principles perspective, right? Like I go, I actually go back to my operating perspective where um, I feel as though nowadays people don't know, but Plaid wasn't a very popular VC investment, right? We were not loved for a very long time. I remember I actually would get somewhat frustrated because we were never on anyone's portfolio page. We were never the featured story. There's certain investors that we loved, but then there were a lot of investors on the cap table where probably wouldn't really give us the time of day because we weren't the best performing portfolio in the company. And it took us a little bit to really, I think, hit hyper growth and product market fit, right? We were just very methodical around building the company. And I think that oftentimes, and that's something that I share with a lot of founders where like building a company is, especially a VC-backed company, is extremely hard. And as much as we like to think that there's runaway successes, I think the vast majority of amazing outcomes in, in, in the Valley and in, in, across the world there was a period of time where that founder went through the desert and uh, kind of that trough of sorrow right before they got to product market fit. I think about that a lot where a lot of investors pass on us because for Plaid, it was, oh, first time founders. And it was, oh, the TAM isn't that interesting. FinTech, I don't think that's a big enough market. Oh, you're building this developer product. I don't really understand the go to market motion. Like there's a lot of reasons that didn't fit into prior fitting knowledge that fits, right? And what happened in the past is not sort of conducive of what's going to happen in the present, right? And so I do think there's a lot of downsides to specializing, right? There's also even like timing, right? It could be, well, maybe I think the past few years, I actually think there was almost way too excitement in fintech. And so I actually like have, it's been actually been a while since I did a fintech investment recently, just because of the amount of investment, the amount of competition. It just seemed that every single week there was, a new competitor, I would talk to a founder and be like, this idea actually seems quite interesting. And then I would dig around and all of a sudden, wait, there's, seems like there's 10 other founders also approaching these things. And there's a VC fund trying to incubate the exact same idea, just given the amount of excitement and funding. And there's different hype cycles that we see, right? Obviously, the crypto went through a hype cycle, fintech went through a hype cycle. I think AI, whether it's deserved or not, is going through a bit of a hype cycle, right? And sometimes there's just market realities to the market that you're in and a lot of it's timing. So I think about that a lot. And, and the way that I, I, I sort of counteract it as well, I'm going to be picking up different theses and different other ideas I want to explore. Like I don't just want to do fintech. And a lot of my other investments nowadays have actually been more in kind of maybe like go to market software, enterprise SaaS, developer tooling observability, try to expand out the aperture and going deep into those areas. Also spending time in AI and understanding what's happening right now with LLMs, but there's definitely a lot of downsides, I think, specializing. And I think just being cognizant of what those downsides are is the important thing. And just to close that loop, just because selfishly, I'm 
quite of a fintech fanboy, as I said before. Like what I really love specifically about fintech is that it can be viewed in a very horizontal way, right? And so kind of intersections with all other markets, right? Monetizing any SaaS, any marketplace with fintech. Or yeah. even, you know, horizontal shifts like LLM models and where are there interesting areas that are actually going to be, you know, reinvented and some sometimes even kind of cycles. So like if you reinvent something within financial services, that might actually expand the market that you haven't even thought about. So that's just to close yeah. the loop that like in itself, um, it's a it's an area that can be quite, quite wide. Yeah, no, 100%. I, the other thing that, yeah, I, I 100% agree everything is fintech everything starts to look like fintech everyone does payments at some point and that is that fintech probably fintech right and also fintech is is, is massively hugely broad like it, there's there's a ton of areas of fintech that i don't cover and that i don't grok right like insurance i don't really grok insurance i'm definitely not an expert in anything i'm not an expert in fintech I'm, i call myself a very broad generalist in fintech i have a lot of people that i actually go to that are that are experts in that space there's just massive massive industry still right and so even specializing in fintech i sometimes even push back around like well i'm not even really specialized in fintech and i think no one actually is specialized in fintech just because of how many different markets that actually encompasses and how big that is charlie i have to ask you now that we have you with us with the u.s perspective how do you think about europe do you think about europe at all is Europe more interesting to you today than it maybe was two years ago? I'm, I'm sort of curious to hear just when I say Europe, what's top of your mind? There's definitely now, I think, a level of sophistication around fundraising that probably wasn't quite there among European founders, um, even sort of like four or five years ago, right? And a lot of it, I think, my, my initial sort of impression of Europe when I first kind of went over was, it seemed as though the European sort of venture scene was dominated by a few venture funds and like, the different stages. There are a few seed funds you'd go to. There'd be a few pre-seed funds. There'd be a few Series A funds and a few growth funds, right? Uh, and the terms tend to be, I think, quite dictated by those firms. Uh, and I remember actually being surprised at the amount of ownership that a lot of founders in Europe w- would give up, right? Whereas in the US, I think that this sort of trend around being founder first amongst VCs kind of a started in the US a lot more and just the level of competition among investors kind of started in, in the US. And I think that was kind of in the last five, six years that happened. But we've quickly seen that happen in Europe, right? Where all of a sudden there's a ton of capital uh, in the US. I think the US got extremely competitive and Europe wasn't considered as competitive to a certain extent because of just the number of funds that were considered top tier in Europe, right? And so I think that we started to see a lot of investors start to look at Europe, build out European practices, start to hire other GPs from European funds, right? And so I think now pretty much every single multi-stage firm in the US like has some sort of presence across Europe or has some sort of European coverage. Uh, and all of a sudden you started to see uh, sort of US firms doing a lot more European deals. And that was, I think, a really interesting dynamic to watch, right? So nowadays, I think that when it comes to sort of there's still probably a bunch of education and things, but in terms of like level of sophistication from, I think, really good founders around fundraising is sort of at par to the US, right? I think there was a period where you there was a bit of like a, I don't want to call it like pricing arbitrage, but there was a period where, okay, great, US deals were really expensive. And I remember I was spending time in Europe and being like, well, these deals are actually quite reasonable um, just in terms of where they're getting priced at and traction and level of traction versus the amount of fundraise and how much solution the founder was giving up. But I think that it's been priced out a little bit more now, right? 
Um, and it's pretty comparable. But I also remember quality of founders was also really, really high, right, in Europe. But I think just people just weren't really understanding where are the ecosystems of founders that people are coming out from. And I think people that capitalized on that really, really early of finding those central nodes and ecosystems started to find really, really good investments across Europe. I think the other thing which which I kind of couple from my kind of, I would say like operating hat is I think that oftentimes US investors and myself included will naively sort of do this model of, well, this works in the US and this is a company that works in the US. Let me go find a European founder that's kind of tackling a similar thing and we'll just do like an, uh, a European go to market. And I think especially in fintech, often fail to realize, no, the regulatory landscape is different. The consumer business behaviors are super different. Even culturally, each of the different countries are different. Europe is not just one big country, right? Uh, it's a, a amalgamation of a lot of different people, teams, cultures, and going after a pan-European strategy is actually very, very non-trivial. I think that was a mistake that we made. And we quickly rectified when we came over from Plaid early on. It was like, oh, we're going to go tackle Europe. And then we realized, oh, no, like the go-to-market in France versus the go-to-market in Spain, no shit, totally different, right? And I think that's a mistake that a lot of American investors tend to make on trying to pattern match what works in the US and trying to pattern match to Europe. And I think the key is it, it is going deep and really understanding from a first principle perspective, what, what are the market dynamics, competitive dynamics, founder dynamics in each of the things that you're investing in there. And so where I usually land in for Europe is I don't do that many European uh, or really like I don't really do that many investments out of the US. The US market is the one I tend to grok and understand the most, I think, just in terms of all the different things that matter. When I do do like an international investment, it's usually a business model or go-to-market motion or a product that I have a lot of familiarity, right? So for example, I yeah, invested in Kodad out in London, early invested in a company called Belvo that's doing sort of open banking in LATAM, just models that, okay, great. I, I, I All of the go-to-market stuff, I kind of grok and the product and how you go into the product, I kind of grok. What I have to get up to speed on now is the markets that you're in and what that looks like. But hey, at least like some of the other stuff I can kind of quickly pick up and have an intelligent conversation with the founder. Out here learning more about them angels, are you? If you had to name, you know, three core learnings from angel investing in one stream, which ones would you choose? One would be why are you angel investing? I think that's something that every single year quarter, I'm constantly reevaluating and re-asking myself around, well, what is the purpose and, and what am I trying to get out of angel investing and making sure that I'm holding myself true to that and not trying to, I think, scope creep too much around that, right? I think it's easy to get caught up with uh, hot rounds or hot company and all that. I think two, having a process around tracking why you got excited about an angel investment uh, and having some sort of just kind of CRM or it could even just be a giant Google Doc or a giant uh, uh, sort of spreadsheet, right? But being able to actually look back uh, and try to evaluate the quality of the decisions that you made and why you made that decision has actually been really, really exciting. Uh, where like at the very basic level, I'll take notes when I talk to a company. As an angel, you probably get maybe at most an hour, right? With the founder, you probably get a 30-minute intro meeting, and then maybe you might get a follow-up, right? Uh, and oftentimes I can ask for more, but early on, that's kind of what's expected, I think, to a certain extent. And so you, you have to make decisions pretty quickly. And I think just writing down, well, why did you do this investment? And then one year later, two year later, three year later, depending upon how the company is doing, go back and see, well, what was the quality of that decision? I think was really, really interesting to get an understanding as to how I pick and why I pick and how should I adjust that. 
And then three, I think the most fascinating learning to me has been the vast majority of angels and investors are kind of completely useless. It's a very low bar to be a helpful investor. Uh, it's something I talk to a lot of angels about where if you're just replying back with a thoughtful email to investor updates every single time, you're probably better than 90% of the cap table. It's kind of crazy. And so if you're going like a little bit above and beyond, it's actually not that hard to be a high NPS founder angel investor if you just kind of do the bare minimum. And that was really, really surprising to me. Yeah. And also on the second point you mentioned, I think it's very important. Like it's a bit like going back to the feedback loops point you mentioned. It's you don't have many feedback loops and they're very long. So like kind of creating frameworks and structures in which you have like small data points that kind of feed into your mental models, I think is, is definitely a very interesting point. Charlie, you are entertaining us too much. So we better rush to our to our quick fire here. Quick fire. The first question I'll ask you is, what is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started angel investing? The most counterintuitive thing around angel investing, I think it goes, goes back to something that we talked about earlier, which is, I think it's the value add part. I think that I had this mental barrier in my mind that in order to be really value add to a founder, I had to spend a lot of time with that founder. I have to go really, really deep. I have to be spending nights and weekends jamming with them on stuff. And, and I'll, I'll do that with some founders, right? But oftentimes the most impactful things are things that I could do async. And so I've actually moved a lot of my comms and how I work with founders to initially in async mode, where the most helpful thing oftentimes is, hey, shoot me a text. If you need an intro to here, I'll get you an intro. If you need a quick comment on pricing, just text it to me and I will respond back. And just doing that at scale is extremely impactful for them. Second question, what would be your top tip to angels wanting to do more international investments? Get plugged into angels, networks and ecosystems and investors that understand the market. That was probably the most helpful thing for me was getting plugged into people that had a really deep understanding of the markets and the segments that you're interested in investing about, right? One, it's a great way to also start to get deal flow. You can trade notes between US and international and vice versa, right? And so there's a great sort of value exchange there. But just getting context loaded as quickly as possible. Oftentimes, for example, I would look at a company that was doing something internationally and I'd be like, wow, this is a really interesting company. I'll send it to uh, an angel friend out in that region. They'll be like, oh, there's actually 20 companies doing that. Here's what they've tried before. Here are the things that I asked them. Here are the things that I look for. And it could be right, could be wrong, but at least just getting that context and getting context loaded as quickly as possible in order to, to feed into your decision is super helpful. And final question, what advice would you give to your 10-year younger self if you only had 30 seconds? And I know this is a personal one. The advice that I would give would be, I think continue to bet on people. That is probably the, the single most thing that, that has worked the, the best for me at the end of the day, right? is bet on the people that you work with, that you surround yourself on. Uh, don't worry about trying to build as big of a network as possible. I think there was a period in my life where I thought I had to go and meet all these people and go to events and build out the network. And I realized that wasn't very organic to myself and I wasn't getting energy from that. And that the most impactful, relevant relations for me are those that I've been able to build close relationships with a fewer set and number of people, but be really thoughtful around who you surround yourself with. And, and that's compounded, I think, multiple times for me. Amazing, amazing, Charlie. Thank you so much for joining us. It was, it was such a great conversation. The tech ecosystem is better off with people like you supporting the next generation. So thanks for sharing. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Super Angel Podcast, the go-to podcast for angels backing the next generation of European unicorn founders. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Angel LP Syndicate at eu.vc. And if you're an angel listening in and wanting to get closer to the European angel scene, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to connect and see how we can play together. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Vaban from Carter is the easiest way to launch and run your syndicate. Vaban's end-to-end platform automates your back office so you can focus on what matters, supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs and building your network. Angel investors are the fuel to innovation, and they've created the Atom SPV to allow for more deals, more ownership, and less fees. Backed by Carter, the leading fintech infrastructure company, Vaban will be with you all from fundraising to exit. Investors on the Vaban platform have raised over $2.5 billion in global investments for companies including Revolut, Bolt, and SpaceX. If you'd like to learn more, please check out www.vaban.io forward slash EUVC. I've been touched by an angel, girl.